0: And if you can practice self-love, then you realize that you are worth the effort. And so then, you know, it kind of rises up from there. Because every time you choose to do something that's healthy for your body, that is an act of self-love.
1: Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Is losing weight one of those things that's constantly on your mind? Have you lost weight only to find that it comes back? Have you ever gotten to the point where you don't even enjoy food anymore because there's so much shame attached to it? I've been there. After I had kids, I took to calling my belly the pooch because it was always there, sticking out, the minute I gained a few extra pounds. I was ashamed of myself for not getting back into shape. I didn't like what I'd see in the mirror. I was always feeling less than and wondering uh, what kind of magic would be necessary to make it all come back to who i used to be you know and and i have to wonder do you think about self improvement a lot i have to admit that when i started this podcast i was thinking very much about self improvement but as i've traveled along this journey i'm starting to think more and more that what we all really need is self-acceptance. I mean, we live in a culture that is constantly reminding us that we need to improve ourselves. We need to look younger and lose weight and get in shape. We need to buy more gadgets and a better car and a bigger home and on and on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't want things, that we shouldn't take care of ourselves, that we shouldn't exercise and eat well or learn new things. I just have to wonder what could be possible if we were kinder to ourselves in the process. What if we took the time to figure out our heart's desire instead of beating ourselves up for not fitting in to what society is telling us we should want? Boy, am I on a soapbox today or what? Anyway, we're going to talk about weight loss today, but we're not talking about losing weight through deprivation, willpower, and discipline. My guest is Jill Cruz. She's a board-certified nutritionist, and her goal is to empower women to get off the weight loss treadmill and stop suffering needlessly. She is determined to change the culture of weight loss for women to a journey of self-love, self-care, pleasure, curiosity, and lasting success. It was a hard-fought lesson that she went through herself. I can't wait for you to hear her story. So without further ado, here's Jill Cruz. Hey, Jill. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to have you here. Um, I always like to say where I met people and thank you to Dina Bakowitz, the fireball. <laughs> oh my goodness, she was on one of my past episodes. I had so much fun with her. Yeah, And she's how did you know Dina? Did you meet her in Clubhouse or...
0: I met Dina through Elevate Network, which is this international women's networking organization. And with COVID, everything now was is, has been virtual. So even though she lives in Toronto, I was able to connect with her, which is really nice.
1: Yeah, yeah. She's an awful lot of fun. Um, so you and I spoke and wow, your your story all starts with Hashimoto's, right?
0: Yes, I would say that that is often where I start my story. Yeah, <laughs> I could go way back to my childhood if you wanted me to <laughs>
1: feel free. If it, if it if it matters, if it helps uh, tell the story, I'm all for it. Well, you know, one
0: of the things that I look looking back, I realize is my mom was really into health. She was basically a hippie in the 70s. And so she would juice carrots and we'd had like brown rice and tofu and that sort of thing. And. On the weekends, we would go to my grandmother's house, and she's Italian, so we would have pasta and sausage and cannolis for dessert, and there was always wine. So I had these two very interesting influences in my life around food and and health in general, and what I realized many, many, many years later was that my mom taught me the importance of eating nutritious, healthy foods, but my grandmother taught me the importance of enjoying the eating Mm -hmm. process, taking pleasure Mm -hmm. in it. So it is an actually pretty profound uh, influence that has carried on through my life and my practice.
1: Yeah, yeah, clearly. I mean, that, that's there for all of us, right? We've all got some background that is running back there that we're maybe not aware of for a while until until maybe we take the time to dig in and look at it. Were you always aware of that legacy from your mom and your grandma? Definitely not. As a matter
0: of fact, I really only came upon, realized it about a year ago. And I have been speaking to anyone who would listen about the idea that it's not just enough to eat nutritious food. We get plenty of that in the media, right? Mm-hmm. You, you need to eat healthy. But the idea that, that taking pleasure in your food is absolutely fundamental for sustainability, that I had always been talking about, but I didn't realize where that was actually coming from within my own experience and my emotional world with eating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's back it up a little bit. Let's go, let's go to your life, like pre-diagnosis. What did that look like for you?
0: Well, I think that I was always, I had these misguided concepts of what it meant to be healthy. So when I say misguided, I actually mean the USDA guidelines. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, there's, there's some good stuff in there, but you know I thought, well, if I'm, if, as long as I'm eating my six servings of grains a day, which meant I would have a bagel for breakfast and a sandwich for lunch and pasta for dinner, but it was low fat and there was always white meat chicken and I didn't put a lot of oils on things or eat fried food. So I thought I was being really healthy.
1: hmm yeah, that that was the the drumbeat that we were all marching to for a long time. There, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And no
0: eggs, uh, no red—you know—very little red meat, pork. All these things are bad, mm-hmm. and uh, I disagree with that now. But that's how I felt back then. So yeah. I wasn't—I wasn't completely eating terribly, but I also wasn't nourishing my body properly. I just didn't—I didn't realize
1: it how old were you when you got your diagnosis? I was 38. 38. Okay. Gotcha. And were you were healthy, you were doing exercise and kind of staying healthy on that end of things or? Well,
0: my daughter, my second child, my oldest, uh, my youngest child, she was around three at the time. So I was coming off of mm. postpartum, breastfeeding. As you know, you're a mom. When the children are little, you kind of forget about yourself. Yeah. So <laughs> it's all about them. It happens. So I was, yeah. yeah, I was pretty much ignoring my body. I didn't have any glaring problems, but after I got the diagnosis, I started looking back and going, hmm, I have, I have a lot of cramping in my feet and I get tired really easily. And I wake up a lot at night and I have brain fog. You know, I actually had stuff going on. I just didn't pay attention to it, which again is very common.
1: Yeah. And you're probably thinking, I mean, your whole world turns up. I mean, I'll speak to my own personal experience. My whole world turned upside down when I had my first child. I'm, I I'm unrecognizable as a human being, the, who I was, there's the before, the BC and the AC, right? And um, completely changed me as a human being, changed my brain, changed my body, it, it a sea change, you know, and you're so busy focusing on keeping that little human being alive and figuring out how to sleep somewhere in the midst of it. Um, and get enough sleep and just just survive. It's almost survival in those early days. Yeah. When I look
0: back, I I I definitely identify with that as being survival. It's weird because when you look back, you think, What? Why was I so busy? What exactly was I doing? I was a stay-at-home mom. I didn't have Mm -hmm. an outside job. What did I do all day? Well, I don't know, but I didn't have time to take care of myself. (laughs) That much I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is all in, it is an all-encompassing job. It, it it just the days are long and then the the weeks, months, years are just just a flash, gone in a flash, right? But in the middle of it, you're you're just trying to get from one moment to the next. Right. Yeah. So how do you know that it's just not, oh, well, I'm just not getting enough sleep. I'm, you know, I'm just scrambling to keep up as a mom. This is all just stuff that might that must be part of this new existence.
0: Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was thinking, was mm-hmm. it's just part of being a mom. This comes with the territory. And I really didn't think that I had time to take care of myself, but actually uh, I did. I It just wasn't a priority. Mm-hmm. So you know, if for any for any new moms or pregnant women listening, I would say, do take the time, do do set yourself as a priority because then you're a a better mom. And there's no question about it. Um, At the time I did associate it with just being a mom and kind of running myself ragged. But once I got the diagnosis of of the hypothyroid Hashimoto's condition and I started to improve my diet and I eventually got on the medication that they were uh, suggesting, I saw a lot of those symptoms go away. So it wasn't coincidence, oh, now she's three and a half and now all of a sudden they're, no, this was a direct correlation. I, I recognized that, that a lot of those things were coming from either hypothyroidism or uh, my diet just not being n- properly, not giving my body the, the nutrients that I needed, the mm-hmm. basic day-to-day necessary things like enough protein, I wasn't doing that. So those things changed very quickly with my diet changes.
1: So then what happened? Like you, so you started down this journey, you changed your diet, you started eating more protein. Well,
0: the interesting thing is when I got the call, so I went to the doctor as a routine checkup. I hadn't been to the doctor in a couple of years. So I was like, I'm healthy. I'm going to go to the doctor and get my clean bill of health. And I went and he called me a couple of days later and he actually, I'll never forget this phone call. He, he said to me, he said, how are you functioning? That was like one of the first things he said to me. And I, I was like, uh, what do you mean? I'm fine. I'm healthy. And he said, you have hypothyroidism and the numbers are the worst numbers I've ever seen.
1: Wow.
0: So I had, there's something called TSH, which they measure, which was 147. So those people listening who know anything about thyroid will know that's very high. The range on the lab is usually like 0.8 to 3.5 and mine was 147. So I was full blown, full blown. And he he said to me, he said, you need to get the hormone, the medication right away. I resisted that. Uh, For several months, actually. (laughs) Really? What was the resistance? I thought I was healthy. Yeah. And so it was a real, um, I mean, it was a really hard time in my life. So this just came from
1: a physical. This was not, you didn't didn't go because of your symptoms. You went for physical and were like, bang, upside the head. Hello, you have this thing.
0: Yes, See, Did you even-
1: did you believe him?
0: <laughs> well, he sent me the lab. So I, you know, I saw it there. He actually called me in to retest as well. Yeah. So which was good. And he also sent me for a, a scan of the thyroid, a, um, an ultrasound. So he was, he was good. Uh, the one thing he did say to me, which I, I think is I I have proven him wrong is that it's that uh, autoimmune is incurable. There's nothing you can do about it. That was part of the devastation. I think it was like, Oh, well, if you, you do this, this, and that, then you'll be better. No, it was like, you have to stay on this medication for life. And no matter what you do, you're not going to fix this, this underlying cause of the problem. And I have proven him wrong. So uh, I, I, you know, I don't think he's listening to the podcast, but if he was, <laughs> <I would> say, <laughs> you were wrong. <laughs> so there was a lot of resistance in that I'm naturally very skeptical of medications to begin with. Um, I wanted to seek out different opinions from different doctors. So it was, it was that kind of thing. But eventually I did get on the uh, the natural form of the thyroid hormone and yeah i started feeling better very quickly yeah. but i had a lot of anxiety during that time a lot of sleep disruption more than i was having because i was just i was in i think some kind of shock or maybe going through the grieving process i i suppose mm. eventually eventually i i learned to accept it
1: <laughs> if you if you had stayed off so i i know nothing about hashimotos and 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 all so if you hadn't gone on the medicine on the, on the, uh, hormone, what would have been the eventual road that that would have taken you down?
0: Well, I I mean, eventually death if you don't. Wow. So, um, heart probably most likely due to heart disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the, the thyroid hormone produce, I mean, the thyroid gland produces hormones that affect your metabolism, which is huge. It's not just, oh, can I gain weight or not gain weight? It's, it's about energy producing and utilizing energy. It will affect all of your other hormones. Um, eventually, you, know, you probably slip into insomnia, depression, anxiety b- pretty badly. I don't know how long that would have taken,
1: mm-hmm. but um, it would be a miserable life. So you started taking the medicine and did you did you change your diet immediately or was that later? Well, the funny thing is that I
0: had actually started getting interested in nutrition a couple of months before I went to the doctor, just by chance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had discovered this man called Weston A. Price, who was a, a dentist, but he was also a researcher. And he has one of the best books ever written about nutrition, which is not easy to read, but it's very uh, impactful. For me, um, it was written in 1939. So I was reading his book and I was starting to change my diet already. So I just continued on. But one of the big things that I was missing was I didn't understand that this is really important. I didn't understand that the process of improving your diet has to be a feedback loop process. So I eat like this and how do I feel? Do I have more energy or less energy after that meal? Am I? Do I have more mental clarity or do I have brain fog? So mm-hmm. I, I actually happened to meet a man who became my mentor for nutrition and he was teaching me these things. It's not in a vacuum. You don't just read a book and then eat this way and then everything's fine because we're all different.
1: Hmm.
0: So I started to eat more protein. That was a big factor for me. And my cravings went down, which was awesome. (laughs) What were you craving before? Oh, my biggest problem was ice cream. I had actually been eating ice cream at night, every night for, at that point, it had been uh, seven years. My daughter
1: was seven years old. Right. You mentioned to me the last time we talked that, um, that you were doing a lot of night eating. Right. Yeah. That's when the cravings would come during
0: the day. I think I was just too occupied. Uh Uh, You know, it may not have been perfect. I may have nibbled on a little leftover chips from my daughters, but I really didn't think about food that much during the day, except for meals. But at night, as soon as I had to develop this association of when the children are asleep, I get to have my time. Mm-hmm. And that's when I'm going to have my ice cream and no one's going to bother me and I'm going to be happy. So mm-hmm. that was uh, a, a, a ritual, a nightly ritual
1: mm-hmm.
0: for many, many years. So those cravings were the worst. So I had, but I realized this is very interesting. I realized that what I ate at lunch um, impacted my cravings at night, not just dinner, but also lunch.
1: Wow. And how. How did you tap into that awareness? What was, what was the, uh, the process that you used to, to start becoming aware of, okay, I ate this at lunch, that and tonight I have cravings? Were you keeping so, a journal?
0: Yes, I did keep a journal mm-hmm. and I, I paid attention to six things, which I was taught. And I still, I teach all of my clients now. Uh, they are energy, mental clarity mood hunger cravings and gastrointestinal you know if you're having any symptoms or or you know not lack of that so i was paying attention oh i really noticed that when i eat a lunch that has a lot of protein and some vegetables and not a bunch of bread all afternoon my 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 brain is clear oh, well, I think that's probably something I should be doing. So let me Mm -hmm. do it again tomorrow. And yes, there was journaling in the beginning. And eventually I just figured it out. It didn't take that long (laughs) to figure it out. It was pretty obvious what was happening. Definitely for me, energy and mental clarity were huge. Mm -hmm. Mood, not so much. But, uh, you know, I... There was, there, was, there was some stuff with mood as well. I, I think for, I had gotten used to the baseline of kind of blah, not feeling great, not feeling necessarily really bad, mm-hmm. kind of just a little blue every day. And that was going on for years. And I, again, I just thought that was normal. But as I started eating, I think B12 was a big factor for me, but as I started eating better and better and taking away a lot of the junk, I, I would wake up and I would say, oh, why am I not feeling that kind of anymore? Like I, I feel kind of good. So, and I remember telling my husband because I, I hadn't been eating red meat for years and years and years. I started eating red meat, grass-fed, mm-hmm. local, good quality red meat. And every time I would have a steak or something like that, I would say to my husband, do you feel really good? I feel really good. Like something about this food is I just feel good. And he was like, no, because he always had eaten meat. And I, I think, and I never got the blood work to prove it, but I think I was actually low in B12, in vitamin B12. Mm. And, that, and my mood was being affected by those, those infusions of
1: <laughs> nutrients. Interesting. Very interesting. So Mm -hmm. you started to notice this feeling better. Oh, I'm incorporating red meat back in. Did you start doing that like more often because of noticing that? Yes. Yes. Most definitely. And did you find that there was like two times a week, three times a week, four times a week? Was there, or is it a little bit of red meat every day for you or? Well, now I do
0: eat red meat every day. Pretty much wow. I mean I, I'm not I'm not it's not like a religion yeah it's I so counterintuitive
1: to. to everything right I'm like I wow <laughs> yeah
0: but that being said that may not they that may be totally not the right thing for you or for somebody else
1: right but the for the you point. you've been paying attention to how it makes you feel and so for you this is wow.
0: Yeah. For yeah. me, it is. I mean, I'm a huge fan of a pescatarian diet. I think it's fabulous to eat a lot of good, you know, safe fish and lots of veggie. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. I myself do eat fish probably about six, seven times a week. So I try, I, I, I enjoy eating fish as well. The thing about meat or fish, it's all about the quality. It's all about the quality. You can take a factory farmed processed piece of let's say a sausage that has all these additives and coloring and preservatives and it it originally came out of a factory farm Mm -hmm. and then you could take a a a nice beautiful piece of ribeye steak from a grass-fed local farmer you can't compare those are two completely different foods Mm -hmm. because of the quality yeah and so they're often lumped together in studies unfortunately
1: So what point then, I mean, you went back to school to become a certified nutritionist, right? Yes. So tell me about that journey. Like what started to happen there? Well, it
0: was, I started, I I mentioned that I had this mentor. We were living in Chicago at the time. And he is to this day, one of the most brilliant men or people I've ever met, um, and he said, you don't need to go to school, I'll teach you everything. And I just had this instinctively, this feeling like, I think people won't take me so seriously. Like I need a credential, I need some credibility here. So I, I did decide to go to graduate school to learn everything, not just his story, but to kind of get the, the big picture
1: about- yeah. it. so how old were you when you went back to school?
0: Oh, it was I was probably 39.
1: Yeah. Uh, and how old were, were your kids at 40. this point? They're
0: yeah, they were like four or five. I think I, I remember my younger daughter was in, in like a nursery type school. So she would go in a couple hours a day. So I I I had to squeeze everything in and during those those couple of hours. My right. other daughter was,
1: I guess, in second grade. So she was a little bit easier. Was the decision to go back difficult? For you, for me, like I, I hit my mid thirties and, and I started to get interested in radio production and I thought, well, then I've got to go back to school because podcasts didn't exist back then. Uh And I thought, well, does that mean I have to go back to school for broadcasting? And I felt in my mid thirties, I felt like I was too old to go back to school. So I had, I, I kept myself from doing that and then the kids and then, you know, and then all the, the push of life goes by. So did you experience that hump? Did you have to, to leap over that? Or did you just say, I'm going to go back to school. Boom, done.
0: The the latter. Yeah. It was just and I think you know, now that you're talking about it, I think a big part of it is that my husband was like totally supportive. I didn't have to work. We were very, very fortunate Mm -hmm. that I was we had decided I was going to be a stay at home mom until they were much older. Mm -hmm. So that may have also influenced my decision. That would be a big part
1: of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For us, I mean, I we both needed to work and it was definitely um, so that would have been a part of it too. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. school I was, and it was a master's program. And did you find yourself on the older end of, of things as a student or were you kind of in the same zone as your other classmates? And
0: there was a mix. There were actually quite a few people who were in the uh, similar age range to mm-hmm. me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a master's program. A lot of people experiencing what, what you're describing this, this kind of change of career mm-hmm. thing. Um, there were, there were nurses, they were chiropractors, they were doctors in, in the program. So, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people felt like it would just be an, um, complimentary to their, whatever their practice was already.
1: Yeah. And what, so you were a stay at home mom, but so this was a master's program. You got your, your bachelor's degree in, in something at some point. So what, what'd you study before? What, what was your pre-kid uh,
0: lifelike. Oh boy. It was, I did not have any kind of, you know, glamorous career at all. I actually majored in Japanese studies.
1: Wow. Yeah. And,
0: and part of the, I was a history major originally, but then I spent my junior year of college in Japan. So in order for me to graduate on time, I had to have the Japanese studies major. <laughs> <laughs> so I had spent after graduation, I had spent time in Japan another I've lived do in Japan you mean for you didn't do anything glamorous. That's so cool. <laughs> I guess I guess yeah, maybe 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 that was a, a, an interesting choice of words. Yeah, so it, it was, but you know, I never felt like, oh, I have a career. Uh So I spent a lot of time in Japan. And then I was actually when I met my husband, I was working at a Japanese bank and then I moved to a Japanese telecom company. So I was utilizing my language skills and that was pretty much it. I had never I didn't know anything about business. Uh So uh, but, you know, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And then we actually went to Japan together uh, after we got married and my oldest daughter was born in Japan. So when we were there, we kind of lived the expat life. Yeah. So that's totally glamorous.
1: (laughs) You know, what kills me is that so many of us do that. We totally discount our experience because it's ours. And because it's normal for us, and it can't possibly be special,
0: <laughs> so just, so true, so just true. Call you out um, there, sorry. Yes, thank you. No, no, no. You are you are totally <laughs> spot on with that. I, I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> oh, and you know, you're not alone. Every, we all do it, man. We all do it. That's hilarious. Um. So okay, so you go back to school, you become a nutritionist. And what was that path like for you? So then did you go, did you end up working um, for other people as a nutritionist in another company that was run by somebody else? Did you open up your own company right away? So I was very fortunate when I was still in school I had actually it was interesting I mentioned
0: Weston price this uh, dentist researcher guy that well there's this whole organization they have like local chapters. So I was a chapter leader for for this organization It's called the Weston a price foundation. And it was all about like helping people find local foods, basically, mm-hmm. that was my role. So I was listed on their website and this doctor, a local doctor called me because she was interested in getting local foods. And we started uh, emailing back and forth. She found out that I was at the University of Bridgeport for nutrition and she had, her nutritionist had, had graduated from the same school. So she called me in and she said, I want you to work with me. So she, I describe it as just, you know, she just fell in my lap. She literally just fell in my lap. And it's hard. A lot of nutritionists uh, coming out of these programs struggle to find a doctor to, to work with. So there mm-hmm. there is uh there are kind of two worlds in the nutrition department in the nutrition world there's the registered dietitians known mm-hmm. as RDs and then there are nutritionists like me mm-hmm. and a lot of RDs will go in and work in an institution like a hospital or a school or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh nutritionists tend to either start their own business or work for a doctor.
1: Okay. Pretty
0: much it's those are the the two options. They typically won't go into an institution, which is where you you know there's a lot of job security and benefits and all of that. Whereas for us, it's a little bit more, okay, <laughs> how am I going to so, do this? <laughs>
1: did you know what you were getting into when you chose to go to school for nutrition? That, that was something that you were clear, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure this out.
0: Yes. Yes. Because yeah. they, first of all, they tell you, Mm-hmm. Before, while you're applying, but also my husband and I had had a conversation where being a nutritionist would be a great job or career for me because I could still. One thing that I had learned from a friend of mine in Japan who she's her kids were already in college when we were friends. She said to me, She said, Jill, even when they're teenagers, they still need you. Even when they go to college, they still need you. And that mm. always really impacted me for some reason. So my husband and I were both on the same page that we wanted me to be there for them to be able to pick them up from school yeah but I also was feeling like my brain was a little lethargic uh, you know when the kids were little uh, I need stimulation I want to do something I don't want to just sit home waiting for the kids so there was a a deliberate choice in that regard that I'm not going to go work a nine-to-five job I'm going to be flexible Mm -hmm. so that was
1: appealing to me actually Gotcha. That flexibility, so that you could ha- ha- be in charge of your schedule, your time, be there for your kids as a mom, and have the this the the thing that satisfied your brain and your heart and your passion at the same. Oh time. yes.
0: I love the way you put that. That was beautiful. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. how I felt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so I worked for Dr. Leventhal. She's a brilliant doctor. I still am friends with her and and she's a mentor to me. I I, uh, trained under her for 18 months because she, her practice was, is a functional medicine practice. So the patients are people who have very complex conditions. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in there so many times sitting, I would just sit quietly and take notes and she was with the patient. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what is she going to say? What is she going to say? Because the, the cases were just so complicated I had no, I would have never known what to say. How, you know, how can you even begin to help this person? she was, she's brilliant. Wow. So I learned a lot from her and I, I often would leave feeling, I know nothing. Yeah. I know nothing. Mm-hmm. And that feeling got less and less and less. And eventually, when, once I graduated and got my certification, she wouldn't let me see patients until that happened. Mm-hmm. And I had already been under her for a year, you know, working with her for a year and a half, learning how to read all the labs. Then she started sending me her patients. And so I, I worked for her for, for six years. Wow.
1: So, you know, one of the things that you and I talked about, um, I want to circle back to your, your own experience of changing your diet and, and all that. One of the things we talked about before was that you, you went down the road of trying to get more healthful with your eating. And at some point you realized that, that there was the missing ingredient was the enjoyment of food, which I think I I've certainly experienced as I've, as I've been on my own little journey of trying to figure out what's healthy. You know, and after a while, you don't know what to eat and it's stressful and nothing's enjoyable. And so, and I love that one of, one of your names for yourself is the, the healthy hedonist. Right. I love that. I love that. So tell me about that awakening of getting back to the enjoyment of food.
0: Well, we had been living in Chicago and I was under the influence of this mentor, this brilliant man, but he was so meticulous. I mean, he would not break even just a little. And I was following in his footsteps and then we moved back to New York and my family's Italian. So you can imagine, mm. <laughs> like it was, it just yes. did not fly. I mean, it, one one of the wonderful things about, um, I think my family, and probably a feature of being of Italians is that we, people really don't mince words. And I was teased to no end. And my, my brother would make these big bowl of pastas with tomato sauce, uh, meat sauces and everything. And I wouldn't eat the pasta. And I was just, they, really had no mercy and in a loving way. Uh, And it started, I started to think, hmm, hmm, you know, maybe they're right. Mm.
1: Because the whole
0: thing was, how can you do that? You're not having fun. You're not enjoying the food. It looks boring. And they were right. I was too obsessed with um, if it's not this, this and that, If it's not organic or whatever it was, then I won't eat it. And I slowly started to eat more variety, which was good for me. I mean, I was probably too thin. I wasn't eating enough fiber. You know, I, my diet wasn't perfect at that perfect at that time because I too had fallen back into this dogmatic thinking of. You know, if it's not sustainable and local and grass-fed, then I, I can't eat it. And carbs are bad. That was another big one that I fell into. Carbs mm-hmm. are bad.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So there was no, I'm not saying that I should have been eating donuts, but maybe some quinoa, maybe some wild rice, maybe having a slice of pizza once in a while. I, it was, I, I refused all of that stuff
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it wasn't good for me mentally or even I would say physically. Mm-hmm. So I started to take a more holistic, uh, basically a more fun approach.
1: <laughs> Was there a moment when you, did you have an aha moment? Can you take us to that? We were at a,
0: at a meal, a family meal. And my uncle, basically, he asked me, he said, are you having fun? Because I had this bolognese sauce and broccoli rabe but I didn't have any bread or, or pasta or anything like that. And he just looked at me and he, he was like, are you, he said, are you having fun? And I was like, I was insulted. I was like, yeah, of course I'm having fun. He was like, no, you're not. You know, it was just that one moment that I realized like he, he was right, I was not having fun. I was, I was constantly, constantly thinking about food, whether it's good for me or bad for me, good or bad, mm. good or bad, good or bad. Mm.
1: And I couldn't relax.
0: So that was definitely that meal. I I'll never forget
1: for sure. (laughs) Did you you go get some pasta and put it on your plate right then? Or were you like offended and you went home and you processed that moment? And yes, was it the next day? Was it a couple of weeks later? Was this a process that suddenly you started to look at and question yourself for a while? And did that take a while?
0: That triggered the process of questioning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was pretty soon after we moved back from Chicago and I, it wasn't an immediate thing. And as a matter of fact, I struggled with this to a greater or lesser degree for several years. Uh, so I, I kind of started eating more variety. Then I found the keto diet and I, and I started doing keto and that was really extreme too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, I do credit the doing the keto diet with helping me to cure the antibo- the Hashimoto's antibodies. So I'm not against certain, uh, let's just say very highly restrictive diets. I think there's a place for them but we always need to keep an eye on the mind at the same time, because it's after that, I kind of was in this year long, maybe two year long process of a lot of uh, judgment and blame on myself for not being able to do keto and going Mm -hmm. on it and off it and on it and off it. And so healing diets are great, but for a short, I think a short period of time. And then the goal is really to be as you know, as relaxed as you can about it. Because the thing is, this is my wisdom that I have over years and years of thinking about this stuff, is there's a place, there's this like kind of magical little sweet spot where you eat the good food because you want to. That's it. Not because some book told me to, or I feel guilty, or I have this condition or that condition, or I want to lose weight. It's just because I want to,
1: mm-hmm. and that
0: when you feel that feeling, it's golden. You're so in it's the like right a place.
1: balance of knowledge and paying attention to your feelings. It sounds like to me, like in order to, to even know what the good food is to choose it. I mean, I guess you have to have some, some knowledge, right? You've got a a vast base of knowledge to work from to make those choices. Um, but then what you've started doing is, is paying more attention to, to not only how your body feels and reacts to the food, but also how you are thinking about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it's tricky. I mean, we trick ourselves. That's yeah. we humans are wonderful at that. You <laughs> we know, are so good at that. Oh, <laughs> <again>. <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, you know, you think that it's working, you think that it's good. So I, I mean, this is what I do for a living. Is what you're describing, right? So because the information, the knowledge, that's easy. I can get somebody in six weeks. I can get somebody knowledgeable and understanding what works for their body through a process of you know observing and tweaking observing and tweaking right mm-hmm. but then after that it's about the sustainability how sustainable is this mm-hmm. you know how do i incorporate this into my life as just part of who i am yeah. not a diet that's where it takes more time to develop these habits and to really dig deeper into your relationship with food and your and your relationship with your body
1: yeah Yeah. It really has to be sustainable, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh my goodness. And we are so good at tricking ourselves. So I'm I'm wondering too, when did you go strike out on your own? In 2018, January
0: Uh of 2018, I started, I I thought, man, I've, I've kind of figured this eating stuff out like for, for, more of a behavioral perspective. And I wanted to do weight loss. That was the passion that I had because it seemed to me that, that, extra body fat was a uh, something that's preventable that then if not taken care of can lead to chronic conditions like obesity, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease and cancer. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be a, a more preventive of, of that, those chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like weight loss was the place to do that. Like, mm-hmm. And it's all behavioral. I started interviewing people because I wanted to create like a, a course. And I thought, before I interviewed people, I thought, because in functional medicine, when you give someone guidance, they go home and they do it because they have neurological pain. You know, when, when you have nerve pain, you'll do anything. Somebody tells you to, to get better.
1: Mm, you right? you, you yeah. are desperate. Yeah. So
0: a lot of people with high, very serious conditions, they just would follow but when it came when it comes to weight loss or type two diabetes, these are behavioral conditions more than anything else. So I I thought, but I thought, oh, if I just tell people what to do, I mean, I know how to help people lose weight, then they'll lose weight. And um, I was talking to people. I, I kept track of all their comments, and I, I crunched numbers on this. Eighty five percent of the comments related to mindset, behavioral issues. So if anybody asked me, I said it's a 15% knowledge, 85% behavior.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
0: And so that's what I kind of mindset based my is on. so
1: amazing when it comes to everything. Everything, yeah. right? How we're talking to ourselves and being aware of just being aware of our thoughts so that we can choose thoughts that are going to serve us better. Yeah. It's just in every aspect of life that is so important.
0: It is our thoughts are our habits. Yeah, most most of our thoughts are hab- habitual. So when you know that you, if you know how to start or stop a habit, which is another thing I teach my clients, right? If you you and you recognize that that thought is habitual, you can phase yourself off a bit. All of this stuff is a daily practice. It doesn't just happen. We don't fall out of bed like, "Oh, I'm wonderful. I love myself. I'm going to do everything I need to do to be happy." No, no, that's not. I mean, I've never met anybody who falls out of bed like that.
1: (laughs) It's more Um, like, oh, yeah. Oh, right. Every see, I I have to tell you, you know, confession time here. I get up in the morning and I am not positive. I'm not poly positive. No, no, not you know, and. It's a choice that I have to. I have a morning routine, and I take myself through that morning routine to kind of shake off the heaviness and the worry and the anxiety and the stuff.
0: Absolutely, true Absolutely. confession time.
1: <laughs> no, I think. Listen, and anybody who's listening is going to that. You
0: know, we all have that to a certain extent, right? What, whatever it is, we it's it is. It's a practice, but it's a nice. It's a practice that gets easier. Mm -hmm. the more you do it, it does get easier to kind of look at yourself. I mean, every morning I say to myself, you are worthy. Yeah. You are worthy. And that is a big one for me. I I mean, it's probably a big one for a lot of people. So, um, and this all relates to weight loss. This is, this is the crux of the issue right here. Mm -hmm. It's actually about, I believe that it all comes down to self-love all of it. And if you can practice self-love then you realize that you are worth the effort. And so then, you know, it kind of rises up from there because every time you choose to do something that's healthy for your body, that is an act of self-love.
1: And- Amen. Amen. Every time you choose to do anything for yourself. I mean, I think we, we so often, we don't want to be selfish. We don't, it's, it's that whole thing of like the new mom, right? Not taking yeah. care of herself because- you know, you can come up with a million reasons when you're a new mom, not to, not to take care of yourself, but it's, it's when you do, you have that much more to give. It's not about being selfish. It's about filling your well Mm -hmm. so that you have something to give.
0: Yes. And that's why I said, I would go, if I could go back to, you know, my my former self, I would, I would say that I would tell myself that yeah. just slow down a little, just slow down, take some deep breaths. It's going to be okay. If, if you need to do a little stretching or take a walk, you're, you're, your baby's going to be fine. I mean, as long as the baby's with somebody else, (laughs) you know, it was like, Oh, I can't leave. The baby can't survive for 15 minutes without me. I was kind of like that, you know, it took me a long time. I mean, and this is what, you know, I I hope to accelerate the process with my clients, right? Like all this stuff that I've gone through, like just telling you the stories I'm, I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I learned a lot of lessons and I would like to, but I guess you kind of have to learn it yourself, but you know, that is my mission, right? Is to help women to develop those practices.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can clearly see that. I see how energized you are by what you're doing and it's, it's tremendous. So what, I can't believe how fast time goes by. What are you most excited about? That's coming up soon. Anything, anything exciting on the horizon? Um. Well, I'm
0: really just focusing on, working with clients, meeting new clients, and, and just increasing our impact as much as we can. I I have two nutritionists who work with me. Um, and that's exciting. Um, where
1: can people find you before we go? And I'll have it in the show notes as well.
0: The best, place to find me is to go to my website, which is winweightloss.com, W-Y-N for Mm -hmm. work with your nature. Okay. I have a blog and there's just a ton of information on my website. So I think that's a great place to find me, get to know me, my mission, my philosophies about weight loss. And, um, I'm on social media as well, but I think the website is the, is the hub
1: Okay, great. <laughs> well, I am so appreciative. Thank you for the time that you've taken to, to go into your story today. I appreciate it. Oh,
0: thank you. No, it was a pleasure speaking with you. It's uh you know, it was just a natural conversation, and I really appreciate your curiosity. Sometimes, you know, you were talking about earlier about this thing of, you know, kind of devaluing yourself. It's like, who wants to listen to my story? You know, but it, it's it is so much fun to to uh, to talk about it, and I feel very appreciative of the fact that I do have a passion, that I do have something I feel really passionate about. Mm. That is that's happiness.
1: It really is. It really is. Isn't it like, I, I, I kind of just wish that for everybody to be mm-hmm. able to tap in and figure that out for themselves. And that's why I do the podcast is hopefully, you know, that somebody hears something that gives them a moment of questioning and makes them feel inspired to maybe dip their toes towards that, whatever that is, you know, kind of yeah. take the baby steps and yeah, go love figure that. it out.
0: That's great.
1: Yeah. Thanks again. Well, thank you. Well, there you have it. The thing I couldn't stop thinking about after speaking with Jill is that self-love is a practice. So I have a question for you. What's one small thing that you can start doing for yourself every day to take care of yourself while thinking of it as an act of self-love? Start practicing it. That's my challenge to you and to myself. If you want to know more about Jill Cruz and the programs she offers, I'll have that information for you in the show notes. You can just go to lateboomerlivingcom forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 90. And hey, real quick before you go, did you have a key takeaway or an aha moment from today's episode? If you did, please share it. Let people know, share it on social media, or leave a review in the Apple Podcast app. Um, Those reviews help other people find this podcast, and I would really appreciate your feedback. So, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.